Hello, I'm Peter Tufano, the Dean of Said Business School at the University of Oxford. Welcome back to the first episode in a new series of Leadership in Extraordinary Times. This podcast is based on a series of live online webinars that we've been running at Oxford Said since the outbreak of the pandemic. We've been bringing together our global community of experts and special guests to discuss the challenges that are reshaping business and society in this era of COVID-19. Our focus is on finding solutions to world-scale problems and building forward better. Do check out our archive of past episodes if you haven't already. You'll find topics ranging from rapid innovation to building resilience in public health, lessons from crisis management and well-being, and much more. A little less than a year ago, we entered a pandemic. At the time, we naively thought that this was a public health crisis, which of course it is, and one that continues to this day. But it's also uncovered a number of other crises. Crises that are economic and political in nature, crises that are exacerbated by inequality, and crises connected to our climate issues. And what we've seen as the waters have receded is more and more of these crises brought to the surface. It's going to take new thinking and innovation to solve them. But what kind of innovation and with what values? Whether we're dealing with the distribution of vaccines or racial divides and the pervasive problem of inequality, it'll require us to make choices. And those choices require us to use our judgment and in particular to administer fairness. The administration of fairness is the definition of justice and just is what we need to be. So we're starting this new series of Leadership in Extraordinary Times by looking at how we're going to come out of this pandemic and all of the associated crises using tools of innovation and with a sense of justice. Episode 1, Social Innovation and Social Justice, with Cheryl Dorsey and Peter Drobeck. An accelerating pandemic, widening inequality, a great democracy, teetering. It's all a bit bleak. But there are green shoots of possibility, and that's where social entrepreneurs come in. In this episode, we hear from two leaders in the field. Cheryl Dorsey has been a trailblazer in this movement. Cheryl is the CEO of Echoing Green, a global nonprofit that supports emerging social entrepreneurs and invests in their ideas and leadership. She's cultivating a generation of changemakers working across sectors to build a better world. There's an old saying that behind every good X, there's a Y. And behind most leading high-impact social entrepreneurs, whether that's Wendy Kopp's Teach for America or Raj Pajabi's Last Mile Health, there's Echoing Green and Cheryl Dorsey. An entrepreneur herself, Cheryl has served in two U.S. presidential administrations and has long been a powerful advocate for racial justice and equity in business and philanthropy. Cheryl's in conversation with my colleague, Dr. Peter Drobeck, a global health physician, social entrepreneur, and director of the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship here at Said Business School at Oxford. For over a decade, Peter played a key role in the transformation of Rwanda's health system, working with Partners in Health, which has delivered unprecedented gains in population health and prosperity. He's a co-founder and the first executive director of the University of Global Health Equity in Rwanda, which is training the next generation of global health leaders. Cheryl and Peter are both doctors working to treat society's greatest challenges. They discuss the entangled crises of COVID-19 and inequality, recent events in Washington, D.C., and why the world needs social entrepreneurs now more than ever. Over to Dr. Peter Drobeck. 
Thank you all for joining us. Welcome to all of you, whether you're joining us in Oxford or from around the world. It's uh, raining here in Oxford. We're very on brand uh, today uh, for England. Thrilled to be with you for this first Leadership in Extraordinary Times event of 2021. We'll be talking about social innovation and social justice in an age of pandemics. We're not only living in a threat where with urbanization, globalization, and climate change, emerging pathogens and pandemic threats are going to be ever-present, but we're living through a series of entangled systemic crises, pandemic-level threats, economic, social, uh, climate, etc. And all of these things are entangled. And we want to talk about the ways that social entrepreneurs can be the sort of people that can help us get out of this and help us uh, think about how we might make a world that's fit for purpose in the 21st century. Because if there's one thing I think we can all agree on is that business as usual is no longer getting it done. Now, there's no better person to tackle these big thorny issues than Cheryl Dorsey. Cheryl is herself a social entrepreneur and was actually an Echoing Green fellow once upon a time and helped to launch something called the Family Van, which we'll talk about, a community-based mobile health unit in Boston. She became the first Echoing Green fellow to head their social venture fund in 2002 and has really emerged as an important leader and voice in uh, in, in a number of spheres. And we'll, we'll touch on a lot of those things today. So Cheryl, thank you for being here and welcome again. Thank you, Peter. I'm so honored uh, and excited to be with you uh, this morning. It's morning for me. And it's morning in Washington, D.C. I think you're speaking to us from your home in D.C. And and you live just blocks from the U.S. Capitol, uh, where there's been a bit of drama over the last couple of weeks. We've we've all sort of gotten used to living in lockdowns, um, but you've experienced a different kind of lockdown. It sounds a bit more like martial law. Um, how is it? What have things been like in D.C. over the last couple of weeks? No, thank you for asking. It's a bit surreal, Peter. Um, you know, we witnessed for the first time in our um, nation's history the breach of our capital with the symbol of a failed insurrection from the 19th century. I don't think we had a terribly peaceful transfer of power. And we have this bubbling up of this tension that really exists at the heart of the American democratic experiment, right? Sort of this tension between the soaring rhetoric and ideals around justice and equality for all, and this sort of sinister animating feature that created this country, um, the forces of white supremacy. And they were um, on full display for a month post-election, where I think there was some question around how we were going to get to the other side of it. It's an odd, surreal feeling to walk your dog uh, three times a day to see um, National Guardsmen, police forces in your neighborhood trying to protect the residents of the city as well as our nation's capital, the seat of democracy um, from insurrectionist forces. Um, So it's been quite difficult and it's been quite difficult to interrogate that concept of American exceptionalism and our um, tendency to want to export our model of democracy to places far flung around the world um, when we are backsliding um, in terms of democratic fashion in a spectacular form. So it's um, it's sad. Um, But, you know, we must remain hopeful. We've got a new administration who has hit the ground running. Um, We have seated the first ever woman 
African-American of South Asian descent as a vice president. So again, this two steps forward, one step back story that is the story of America. So we continue on and social innovators um, have been called to this moment to get to work um, because there's just so much repair, rebuilding and reimagining to be done in this moment, Peter. Mm, well put. And uh, our mutual friend and uh, former Echoing Green fellow, Dr. Raj Punjabi, just joined the administration as the president's malaria coordinator last week, which I was excited to see. Um, just to, to build on what you were saying a bit, this kind of rise in populism uh, and the deep divisions that we've we've seen are nothing new, and they're driven by a, a number of forces, racism, nativism, economic anxiety, etc. But there's also a kind of, you know, a nihilism, a blow it all up mentality. And you've told me in our previous conversations that you see social innovation as a flip side to that coin, or maybe an antidote to that kind of mentality. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant? Sure. I mean, again, I've um, been toiling in the field of social innovation, you know, two plus decades now. And, you know, the animating feature of social innovation is this recognition, this clear eyed recognition that current systems are not working or not working for enough of us. Um, But there is a real um, animating feature to try to fix, repair, rebuild, reimagine those systems to make them more inclusive um, and provide more opportunity for all. But the diagnosis that these systems aren't working is the same diagnosis that we see from those um, who are animated by populist anger, right? So again, we come at the problem um, from the same vantage point. Um, The way that we have constructed societal forces are simply not working. I often talk about the weight of systems, systems residue that are weighting folks down people of color, marginalized folks, poor folks, women. We can go through all the forms of oppression and these systems are exacerbating those. So we all see it. However, our prescription for what to do about it is radically different. Social innovators recognize that indeed there's a problem, but they raise their hand as engaged, committed citizens um, to say, well, it's our job to fix it. We roll up our sleeves, we get to work and we figure out what we can do. So much of the populist anger um, is a nihilistic one. As you said, Peter, it's blow it all up, consequences be damned. And these conflicting forces that are butting heads, there has to be a way to engage more um, folks from the other side who are as frustrated um, as many of us are who are engaged in the work of social innovation, but do it within the realm of um, democratic practice that provides a seat for all of us at the table. Um, I think that's the needle to thread. And I think we've got to figure it out and we got to figure it out sooner rather than later. Yeah, that's that's right. And, uh, you know, we um, as a as a fellow recovering doctor, I use a lot of medical metaphors um, and, and and sometimes talk about, you know, some of these issues as being deep wounds, which we're trying to sort of paper over with with band-aids and really just treating the symptoms. And what social entrepreneurs and social innovators do is really try to understand what's driving these problems at the root causes uh, and, and try to impact those systems and those deep structural forces, treating the system rather than the, the symptoms. Um, let's talk about about uh, your organization, Echoing Green, uh, which has been for over 30 years at the at the forefront of really cultivating a movement and a generation of social innovators. Talk a little bit about what you do. Sure. And I'll start by, you know, I often get the question, why, why are you called Echoing Green? Are you an environmental organization? What do you guys do? And given where you're um, sitting today, Peter, you'll appreciate that the name of Echoing Green comes from a book by the 18th century 
poet, painter, and printer, William Blake, called The Echoing Green Songs of Innocence. Um, and he's got a wonderful quote that in many ways is the animating feature of why Echoing Green does what it does. And the quote is, I must create a system or be enslaved by another man's. I will not reason or compare. My business is to create. And that is just so lyrical and beautifully put and really encapsulates what we do. Um, we're talent spotters. Our job every year through an annual global social business plan competition is to try to reach into communities around the world and identify um, early stage leaders, increasingly looking for proximate leaders with lived experience who've got innovative game-changing ideas to improve the life circumstances of those they care about and love in community and provide them with some money, uh, some support, and access to our community to allow them to um, launch and scale their social enterprises. You're right, Peter, we're both recovering docs and you'll appreciate as much as I will. So much of the way we approach our leadership development work at Echoing Green comes out of the social determinants of health framework, right? That you got to take a holistic approach to the way that you deal with your patient, with your customer, with the leaders of Echoing Green. And when you look at how we try to support those uh, leaders, our supports really fall into three buckets. So one, really is, um, you know, the blocking and tackling work that you have to do in trying to support an early stage social innovator. It's all about access. How do we increase access to capital and other non-financial um, supports to help our innovators get farther faster? The second piece also that you'll appreciate as a doc is this notion around the hard work of social change that has physiological impacts as it relates to trauma, right? You know the research of Geronimus and others that have looked at a cellular level and found the concept of weathering that disproportionately impacts folks of color, marginalized community where stress and trauma show up in the way that our cells are impacted, leading to disproportionately poor outcomes. So unless you deal with the outer work, unless you deal with both the outer work of leadership development as well as the inner work, how do we tend to the soul of the leaders we support that allow them to stay in the game over the long term and heal themselves and their communities, you're not going to get to the level of transformational change that we need. And the last piece at Echo and Green, we talk a lot about power um, and how do we explicitly center power building strategies to help these innovators embed themselves within systems that need to be radically changed and allow them to build the collective power to do that. So it's been a wonderful journey. Echoing Green has had the privilege to now work with close to 900 social innovators in about uh, 90 countries around the world. So building that beloved community has been um, sort of the honor of a lifetime for me. It's an amazing and probably really difficult job as well. I think, I don't know if you've been victims of your own success, but as this movement has grown, right, the the, the demands um, for opportunities like this has become so great. I don't know whether it's like a thousand to one or something in terms of the number of applications versus fellowship spots, but what do you look for? Um, are there specific traits or qualities in this sort of talent spotting process that um, you think can help you to identify the kind of leaders that we need? Absolutely. And you're right. As the field has grown, that's only a good thing because any one organization could never hope um, to sort of meet the demands for the social innovators in their community. So we need more players on the field more quickly to support um, this robust civic energy. Um, and there are a lot of problems we have to, to tackle, and they're increasingly complex. They're in, uh, rapidly um, overtaking our ability to solve them. So we need more, more, more. But Echoing Green 
has really sort of staked its claim on looking for a particular type of transformational uh, social change leader, Peter. And whereas, you know, a number of our colleagues and friends in the space um, will sort of overemphasize sort of the business plan or the opportunity for scale, at the heart and soul of what we do is we're looking for transformational leadership um, at the moment, um, at the light bulb moment when they're first setting out um, to launch their social enterprise. And we invest in this talent for the long haul, whether they remain with their organization or not, because we think um, the particular leader that we're looking for over the duration of her career is going to transform a variety of systems, movements, and inflection points um, across the social change landscape. So we're with her for the long haul. But, you know, at Echoing Green, we often talk about SEQ, which along with sort of IQ and EQ um, are a variety of qualities and characteristics that we think are very closely aligned with success as a social uh, innovator. And that's a range of qualities from um, a deep level of authenticity uh, and connection to community. Um, you can always tell with a social um, entrepreneur, it's never um, them, it's always we right? There's always a deep commitment and putting community first. And you can see it and feel it and is so essential to the um, leadership of the social innovation. We also talk about a wonderful quality that we see time and time again called resource magnetism. We are looking for um, social innovators, these transformational leaders who are phenomenally sticky, right? They have an uncanny ability to mobilize not just financial resources, but also human capital. They mobilize others to their cause. They mobilize attention. They mobilize excitement um, and build sort of a collective experience around what they're trying to do. And one of the other qualities is um, what we talk about as blessed naivete, right? I think it's a kinder way of saying you got to be a little bit crazy to do this work sometime, especially in the early phases of doing the work. You know, we see so many next gen folks whose parents, whose friends tell them, you're crazy. Why in the world are you doing this? Why are you getting off the tried and true pathway to do this thing? Why are you doing something so untested? The status quo often um, is quite cruel in questioning the intentions and the visions of these transformational leaders, always signaling and having a really powerful narrative of, you know, we've always done it this way. Why in the world would you do it that way? And there's this protective coding, again, this blessed naivete, that they have a deep belief that the tomorrow that they see today is directionally where we need to go. And they cannot be buffeted off their pathway um, by all the forces around them that are telling them otherwise. And it's this beautiful constellation of characteristics that when you titrate it up, leads to a profound leadership trajectory. I'm gonna have to pick your brain on that. Um, we, For the many years that I lived in Rwanda, I was with uh, Dr. Paul Farmer, a mutual friend of ours, uh, and his family and his daughter, Catherine, who's now all grown up when she was younger, used to make fun of us um, for working all the time, basically. And she used to call us uh, in, in French, uh, fou à la bon sens crazy in a good way. Um, and I think that's part of part of what you're getting at. You need that little bit, right? And that's often driven by a deep sense of moral outrage. I've got a very practical question here from Ankush Modi. Um, Cheryl, how do you become part of that community? You do it by um, having an idea, an early stage idea to start an organization um, that is driving transformational change in your community. You go to the Echoing Green website. Our next um, round of applications is opening in the spring. So just check out echoinggreen.org and you upload a very quick initial submission 
tell us who you are, right? Again, we're trying to um, see you. We truly want to see who you are in the deepest recesses of your heart and soul. And we want to learn about what motivates you. Why do you do what you do? So it's not much more than that in terms of the initial application process. And then once we get to know you a little bit, we'll um, invite a select group of folks to submit a more uh, robust business plan. And then through uh, a couple month vetting process, we ultimately make our selection of the 20 to 30 new enterprises that we will invest in annually. And we invite you into our community. And it's not just a community, it's a family. So um, please do uh, check out our website and we encourage you to apply if you're just getting started with your idea for um, driving social change. Peter and Cheryl now move on to talk about Cheryl's own journey as a social entrepreneur. They're going to turn back the clock a few years to when she was a medical student in Boston and founded a social enterprise called The Family Van. How did she journey from medicine to social entrepreneurship? I'm so old that, you know, social innovation, social entrepreneurship was not a thing, right? So in my day, um, those of us who were deeply committed to doing community service work or social change work or social justice um, work um, sort of fell under the moniker of service. Or in my case, I consider myself a social justice baby, right? I'm an African-American woman, um, born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, um, who grew up um, questioning whether I mattered, right? Again, I'm part of the great American experiment for good or for ill and heard signals and stories and got cues and clues every day that fundamentally I didn't matter. And it was whether I was um, disregarded by a teacher because of the way I looked or because I read stories like the one of the great poet, Phyllis Wheatley. Um, For those dialing in globally, Phyllis Wheatley was an enslaved woman in the 1700s who was later freed, who was the first African-American to publish a book of poetry in the United States. An extraordinary life story and journey and an extraordinary artist. But yet and still in Thomas Jefferson's book, 1785, Notes from the State of Virginia, He spent a section of that book denigrating her poetry and questioning her ability and all African-Americans' ability to produce art, to be worthy of consideration and to be educated. That was such a thunderclap in my mind that here this secretary of state, this president, this farmer, this gentleman farmer had to take time out um, of of his day, out of his week, to denigrate and to marginalize and disappear an enslaved woman artist. And that sent such a powerful signal to me that there were structures and systems that were set up to dehumanize a group of people who looked like me. And that level of inequity and marginalization um, simply infuriated me and devastated me, um, thinking that it limited the life outcomes of so many people who look like me. Um, That sort of marginalization continues across the great scope of our history. Um, You know, you look at the civil rights movement here in the United States through the 1960s. There was a famous segregationist sheriff in Albany, Georgia, um, uh, Sheriff Pritchett, who stood and looked at a group of civil rights activists as he was about to unleash the dogs and the cops and the water hoses on them and said, you know, I don't mind doing it because you don't matter, right? So this concept of mattering um, has led uh, me to everything that I've done in my life. 
And nowhere does it show up more when you look at the racial health disparities across this country in the mortality rates of Black babies versus white babies in our country. In the late 1980s, Black babies were dying at three times the rate of white babies in inner city Boston, which is horrific and inequitable enough. But the fact that it was happening a stone's throw away from the world's greatest medical facilities, halls where Peter and I have walked as physicians, um, was just atrocious. And as far as I was concerned, um, could not stand. So we all have moments of obligation in this world. You know, what is, what is our job to do? What is our fight to fight? And that was my fight to fight. So I had the a unique honor of my life to uh, meet my now mentor, um, obstetric anesthesiologist, Dr. Nancy Oriol, former Dean of Students at Harvard Medical School, an amazing African-American woman and trailblazer. And together we started a mobile health unit that called the Family Van to bridge the divide between those in community with services that exist, the surfeit of services that Peter and I know are available to folks um, that have the resources and access that we do. Um, so we didn't know what we were doing, but we were a little bit crazy. We couldn't stop thinking about this idea. And uh, Echoing Green came along at just the right time and believed certainly in me before anyone else did other than Nancy. Um, and it changed the trajectory of my life and brought me into this work of social innovation that I'm privileged enough to still be doing almost 30 years later. It's a, it's a really potent reminder that we don't need to go halfway around the world to find a problem to solve, that they exist, um, you know, all around us in our own communities, you know, wherever we are. And, and that's such a poignant example of that sort of, you know, really medical apartheid that exists in the shadow of these amazing, wealthy, multi-billion dollar institutions. Um, and so I want to build on that and talk a little bit more about local change and, and, and proximate leadership. And maybe to kick off, actually, we have a great question from uh, Ingville, who works in, in rural Haiti. And she says that she's found that women, especially young women, have great ideas for social innovations and community development, but very often lack the self-confidence to bring those ideas to life. What's your advice on this? I think that is a wonderful point, And thank you for sharing it. And I certainly have felt that, um, you know, less so now. I mean, there's not much I like about getting older. I've got a sore back this morning, but I will say um, sort of the the wisdom and sort of the shedding of what others will think of you um, sort of fades away the older you get. But I will say this is a very intersectional conversation. There's so many of us because of our race, our gender, our class, our sexual orientation, um, sort of where we fit in our um, societal caste systems that really silence our voice. Um, and I do see it certainly with women leaders and aspiring women leaders. And I think there are a couple of things. One is this notion of amplification, sort of making sure you find your crew who are those people who are going to surround you and love you up and prop you up when you don't believe in yourself as much as others? For me, that was my mentor, Nancy Oriol. That for me was the echoing green community who wrapped their arms around me and pushed me forward when I didn't have the confidence to do it myself. I think there's also this concept of networks. How do we start to build and tend local ecosystems, ecosystems of excellence and support that is the rising tide that lifts all boats. I think that's incredibly important. I also think there's some um, narrative change work that has to happen, and I've certainly seen it in the social innovation field because it pulls and draws so much from an entrepreneurial frame, which is so exciting and dynamic and propulsive. It also is gendered, right? There are some um, masculine elements around entrepreneurship, 
disruption, sort of hyper growth, hyper speed that um, in some ways has marginalized the feminine voice to the detriment of bringing more women into the field. So it's certainly work that um, Echoing Green has tried to do, which is pretty good around gender parity of making sure we're welcoming in um, young next gen women leaders like you. But it is a process and it is a journey and recognizing how do you build the community around you to ensure that you have the kinds of fellow travelers you need to achieve the impact you seek in the world. Terrific advice. And I think as as you've seen, Cheryl, from, you know, your community of fellows around the world, as I've seen from from my work, you know, talent exists everywhere around the world. The next great ideas can come from everywhere. But the problem is that opportunity is is not equally distributed. Um, and, and, and this is the, um, you know, the responsibility of all of us to to address. Um, in our sector, Cheryl, in the social sector, there's sometimes this kind of obsession with scale, I'd say a sometimes unhealthy obsession with scale. Yes, these are big problems that we're trying to solve and that requires sometimes big, bold solutions. Um, And we sometimes look for quick fixes that we can just do everywhere. Um, And I find that that's often a real mistake because you strip away all the the important context that actually makes stuff work. You've been a really uh, vocal proponent that real change is local. And again, you've termed proximate leadership. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. And I think sort of, um, you know, there has been some work to sort of interrogate um, this um, issue around scale, right? I think we've weaponized that term to lock out particular leaders that don't have access to the resources that would ever get you to the point where you're able to scale your enterprise. I think it's also a one-dimensional conversation because there are different types of scale, right, Peter? You can scale up, you can scale down, you can scale out. They're all valuable and um, viable forms of scale. But far too often in sort of the polyarchical world of the social um, sector, where um, donors really sort of set and drive the debate, they set the frame around what scale can and should be, in part because mechanistically, the way they move and drive funds, it's easy for them to think about scaling through a particular organization. But I think most of us who um, live and work in communities know it's much more complicated than that. It's more relational than that. It's sort of tending to the local ties, building social capital over time, recognizing that one intervention might work in one community, might not work for another community. And I think there's something going back to centering the role of power, who has it, who doesn't, how do you share it, how do you seed it, that it's interesting to see that we've got this moment where conversation has broken through, allowing the value, the inherent value of proximity, of lived experience to be um, valued in this conversation. Um, I think that is fairly new for all of us who work in the leadership development space. We're all um, sort of pushing this conversation around decolonizing leadership development. And part of that is making room and space for the power of local embedded leadership as being the driver for solutions that work in space and time for that community and then engages um, community members as the most valuable asset of that community. So much more work to come. I often talk about the axis of access, right? So I think we're moving in the right direction of raising up proximate leadership, 
but there are a whole suite of interventions that now have to follow behind that. We know through some work that Echoing Green has done on the depth of racial uh, inequities in philanthropic funding that also apply to women, social entrepreneurs, to folks of lower socioeconomic status. We are locked out of capital flows that allow us to begin to build and scale either up, deep, or out our interventions. Um, but there also is a question around control that relates to who's got power, who's do- who doesn't, how do we begin to talk um, to those in our ecosystem about sharing it. I think it is the right conversation, Peter, to have, but I think it's going to play out in very interesting ways over the next decade. But we've got to see one another and see that our value uh, moving forward and the way out of so many of our problems is embracing the genius of our multicultural, multiracial society. Um, And that's the work that we've got to do in the next couple of decades. Hmm. I think it's such an important point that there's no way to achieve any kind of transformational, structural, systemic, whatever you want to call it, change without reconfigurations of power and redistributions of power. And that's why it's so difficult. That's why the system or the status quo snaps back um, at you. And I think we're seeing that, you know, uh, we're seeing that a great deal, you know, this year with the, you know, the law and order talk in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera, et cetera. Cheryl, one of the things you just mentioned there was around the kind of structural biases in um, in philanthropy and in investing, um, the the limitations on access to capital for female entrepreneurs and to entrepreneurs of color. You've talked about sort of hacking bias. What are some strategies to overcome that? Uh, it's a big, a big question. And, you know, uh, obviously the work that Equine Green does as a nonprofit organization focuses uh, on, you know, philanthropic funding. But these sorts of biases um, show up in all sorts of capital stacks, right? We all know it. I was doing a talk the other day um, that was looking at the tech ecosystem. So looking at venture capital seed funding. And I shared a statistic that when you look in the United States from around 2012, to 2014, there were, you know, thousands of venture deals. Um, Less than 1% of them went to um, African-American women. This was according to Digital Undivided uh, and Social Enterprise working with Black and Brown women tech founders that we invested in. So if less than 1% of the deals went to Black women, when you look at sort of the average ticket size, it was about 36,000 bucks versus the average venture um, investment of about four and a half million. So these disparities are just staggering and stunning, right? So, you know, there's a larger conversation for those of you who are interested in social innovation, who care deeply about impact investing, sort of using triple bottom line strategies um, to drive environmental and social change at scale, bringing in sort of corporate social responsibility, sustainability, all the work that we have to do um, to move to sort of a a stakeholder capitalism model. Um, These biases show up everywhere. So I think there are steps big and small Um, that we all have to take at an individual um, level. There's some interrogation and authentic learning and unlearning that we all have to do and being honest with um, our implicit and explicit biases, which we all have, we all have them. Being willing to disclose what you're doing, whether you run a company, an organization, sort of being transparent um, about where you are in your journey around DEI, recognizing that it is an aspiration And the key part of all of this is that you commit to going onto the journey. I think you also fundamentally just have to 
take some action. So in the wake of the murder of Mr. Floyd in May in this country and the racial reckoning that happened not only in uh, the United States, but across the world, was this notion of sometimes you just have to act and you've got to just make the road by walking. And part of that means for those who are donors and philanthropists and all of us, sometimes you just got to start writing checks. You got to start writing checks to black and brown folks, to indigenous folks, folks who are working in rural areas who are doing incredible work um, that are not proximate to you, but they're sort of a, a a leap of faith and trust, knowing that without full information and without you fully understanding their lived experience, just engaging through your philanthropy can make a difference. So this is a much more complicated conversation, Peter, but I think small steps to begin, just begin the journey of learning, talking to others, and being comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's not a bad way to start, but if enough of us do it, I think we at least begin down this very necessary road to get to the kind of healing and reconciliation that we all need. And and you as uh, Echoing Green are really putting your money where your mouth is, so to speak, um, having recently launched a racial equity philanthropic fund, which I believe is aiming at a, a $50 million investment, which is extraordinary. Uh, maybe you could just tell us a bit about how you want to target those investments and what you hope to accomplish. Oh, thank you for asking. No, it's interesting that Echoing Green is an incredibly diverse community of innovators. And I would say for the past 10 years in particular, we've had a focus on identifying BIPOC leaders, Black, uh, Indigenous, Latinx, people of color, um, proximate leaders, believing deeply in their ability to drive change. And when you sort of look at our community, about 75% of our community um, over the last decade, approximate leaders in the U.S., about 75% are people of color. And so we've got a great deal of knowledge um, and expertise as it relates to racial equity and a variety of structural inequities that lead to oppression. And in the wake of the racial um, uprisings and this conversation that we're having around racial equity amplified by the pandemic, which disproportionately impacts folks of color and um, the racial reckoning, Echoing Green decided to go all in using the expertise that we've gained and gleaned by working with so many social innovators of color um, to launch a $50 million fund to transform the field of social innovation um, and ensure that today's heightened awareness of racial equity translates into sustained action and impact. We have a thesis, a deeply held belief that social innovation is a powerful tool for attacking and dismantling structural racism, right? The work that innovation is so good at, value creation, a dynamic propulsive force, Joseph Schumpeter called it creative destruction, right? So how do you dismantle these systems? It lends itself to the work of tackling the virulence of structural racism, um, not just in a US, but also a global context. So we have decided to sort of scale our work over the next three years to focus on taking on that work in three lanes of work. One is we're going to ramp up and identify 500 BIPOC mostly leaders working on racial equity, mostly in the US context, but also globally, and ensure that they have the funding and the support they need to drive change. We are also tripling down on our corporate engagement work, we all know that the fundamental definition of social innovation is an alliance-based model for change, right? How do you bring the market, civil society, and government together by blurring sectoral boundaries in a way that creates new and shared public value? 
We believe deeply that in this moment, business leadership has got to interrogate the question of what does meaningful allyship around racial equity look like? What does that mean? And if we can sort of scale our intervention of working with business leaders and work with 10,000 business leaders over the next three years, we believe we'll actually reach a tipping point of starting to change the norms, hearts and minds of not just these business leaders, but the corporations that they run to be truly good allies in racial equity. But then the last piece is social innovation is not only a field of endeavor, it is now a bona fide global social movement. And there's got to be a mobilization effort to engage the next generation of talent um, that is waiting on the sidelines. It still doesn't know anything about social innovation. So we've made a commitment to working with up to 5,000 next-gen leadership of color mostly upskilling them around the principles, tools, and tenets of social innovation to stand alongside sort of the tried and true methodologies of change across the 20th century. We know a lot about rights-based movements, a lot about advocacy, a lot about community organizing. I deeply believe, Echoing Green deeply believes, social innovation is a credible tool and should be another arrow in the quiver to join those great approaches to transformational change. And hopefully the work of our Racial Equity Philanthropic Fund will help to get us closer to the promise of social innovation as a powerful force for change. Cheryl Dorsey and Peter Drobeck now take on more questions from the audience who are listening in live from around the world. What kind of return on investment is Echoing Green looking for? And related to this, when it comes to the tension all social entrepreneurs face between the creation of social and environmental impact and financial sustainability and profit, how does Cheryl weigh up these when investing? Echoing Green is a charitable organization. We invest in leaders regardless of corporate form. For the vast majority of our history, most of our social innovators were starting pretty traditional civil society organizations, right? Charitable organizations that relied on philanthropic or government funding to do their work or to scale. Around 2006, we noticed a very interesting trend that has only continued to accelerate, right? The recognition that there was simply not enough philanthropic capital to help scale uh, solutions to so many of the social and environmental problems that we seek. In 2006, about 15% of the social business plans we vetted that year were proposing double bottom line or triple bottom line or hybrid corporate forms. Now it's about 50% of our applicant pool. Um, we select the leaders in our portfolio irregardless of our of their corporate form and at any given year it's anywhere from you know 15 to 30 percent of our fellows are running for-profit businesses um, I would say that um, there has been a lot of interest and excitement around impact investing and how do we sort of drive in capital for social and environmental good the capital flows have not moved as quickly as we would like to the kinds of entrepreneurs that we invest in they are still struggling to build the capital stats that they need to scale their enterprises uh, and I think it in part, there's still this tension between, uh, as our um, questioner asked, sort of how do you think about return on investment? An enterprise like Echoing Green is only seeking to optimize around social return on investment. It's all we care about. Um, whereas some investors um, are not looking to place concessionary capital. They want market returns. So we're starting to see this continuum of funders where you've got folks like Echoing Green who are only optimizing around social return. And then you've got enterprises like, you know, the Rise Fund out of TPG that actually believes you can drive um, social environmental good at scale, achieving market returns. I think this is a conversation that is going to continue to play out across the social innovation landscape. And there really is 
room for all of us. I think where we live um, across this capital continuum is social entrepreneurs who are deeply committed to the social innovation, who recognizing that this sort of capital stacking, drawing in, crowding in all forms of capital is the way that they're patching together um, the growth and sustainability of their enterprises. But it is a fundamentally difficult conundrum for most of them, and it is not easy at all. But again, they refuse to sacrifice the social in their social mission with the business imperative. And again, that tension is ever present, but they continue to figure out a way to work on it. And I think it's going to be a number of years before market mechanisms catch up to these sorts of business models that will never um, sort of pull back on the social mission of what they do. Thanks. Um, I want to turn to the COVID-19 pandemic for a bit. We may bounce around because there's some really cool questions coming in. This is around vaccines. Um, so, of course, we've, we've seen this remarkable wave of scientific innovation in recent months to develop a number of safe and effective uh, you know, vaccines uh, against COVID-19. And those have been rolled out fairly quickly over the last several weeks, but almost entirely in wealthy countries, right? I think we crossed a hundred million vaccine doses administered, which is a great milestone, but, you know, all but you know, I think about 100 of those vaccines um, have been administered in, in really wealthy uh, in, in high middle income countries. So the question from COA is, how will we distribute vaccine fairly in developing countries? Uh, uh, we're starving for this new innovation. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. That is the most important question as we all um, seek to get to the other side of the pandemic and begin to rebuild our lives and our communities and the inequities that existed in terms of which communities were disproportionately impacted in terms of morbidity and mortality. The same sorts of inequities are going to be um, replayed in terms of the vaccine distribution. Um, we're seeing this now here in the United States where you know frontline workers and frontline essential workers in our country, mostly black and brown folks, mostly women of color, are not equitably getting access to the vaccine, even in the United States. So these inequities are extraordinarily difficult. I will say, I think this is the work where social innovators can really lean in. Number one, the facility and the ability to pivot of social innovators because they've got an entrepreneurial spirit is great. So the opportunity for organizations that are in community doing one lane of work, I do think have the ability to pivot and think about how they could be part of this supply chain of vaccine distribution. You've got the trust, you've got the last mile distribution capabilities built out in ways that other um, organizations and institutions do not. I also think there is power in collective organizing to raise our voice to demand that uh, marginalized communities need to be in the front of the line for this voice. This gets us into the realm of politics. And I think um, when I look at groups like Catalyst 2030, which is a collective of which Echoing Green is a part of, which has brought together hundreds and hundreds of social innovators and intermediaries like Echoing Green to help accelerate the progress of the SDGs, we're recognized recognizing that we're simply stronger together. So I do think at this point, social entrepreneurship, which was born out of sort of an entrepreneurial spirit, almost sort of like an individualistic approach to change, we're now recognizing that until we start to build collective bonds um, and networks, 
we're never going to be able to really scale our influence. So I would also encourage you, those of you who are working in shared ecosystems, shared geographies, in particular program areas, to begin to come together and advocate for ensuring that vaccines are more equitably um, distributed. And then I would say last but not least, you know, Peter, at the beginning of the talk, you mentioned Echoing Green fellow, also an Echoing Green board member, Dr. Raj Punjabi. He's left his social enterprise to go and serve in government. There is a call to public service where we need social innovators to become social entrepreneurs within the halls of power, where you can start to set those federal level, those national level policies that will ultimately determine how vaccines will flow over the next two to four years. So I would encourage all of you who are so talented, who have learned so much by being operators in the field, to take that knowledge, your entrepreneurial spirit, your dynamic approach to change, and go and work for your local, national, state level governments, um, because we need you to serve. We need your voice and your perspective. And I would just add to that, because the vaccines is something I've been thinking about and, and working on some that, you know, what's happening right now is, as Cheryl points out, is not just inequity between countries, but within countries as well. And this is not only a, a moral failure and a real pending moral catastrophe, it's kind of cutting off our nose to spite our face, right? It's really not a smart play. Um, uh, and it's going to prolong the pandemic and put us all at greater risk over over the long term. We can't let the virus be raging in one part of the world, um, uh, whilst controlling it another. It's going to widen those inequalities and create all kinds of geopolitical instability. Uh, but, you know, also it just increases the risk of, you know, new variants that might be able to escape vaccines coming back to haunt us. So, um, you know, no matter where your moral compass is, it's in everyone's own self-interest to find a smarter way to do this. And the kind of nationalist approaches to vaccine hoarding that we've seen just choke off supply chains. We need to be thinking about um, not how we slice up this too small pie um, into into different chunks. We need to think about how we make more pie. And I think that's so often the case. So um, why are we uh, sitting back waiting for a few pharmaceutical companies to save us all um, by manufacturing lots of vaccines? Why don't we, you know, open up that IP and have a Marshall Plan style effort to manufacture as many of these vaccines as we can and then distribute them everywhere. Um, so it's a, it's a massive effort. But I think, as you said, Cheryl, um, so important that we, uh, we we work together as a community, as an ecosystem, and as a movement to put pressure on uh, on governments, on multilateral bodies to uh, to to create change. And you know, I, I think the the sentiment is often there, but uh, often in times of an emergency, uh, people tend to turn inward or, or, or focus on their own. And I think we need to uh, we need to um, advocate and sometimes shame our leaders to be um, to be a bit bolder and a bit longer term in their thinking. So uh, some other questions here. It goes to the idea of sort of systems thinking and systems change, Cheryl, and asks if you could give an example of where a, a, a systems change approach, if you want to call it that, was successful in turning an obstacle or an enemy into an ally. Um, how we might sort of overcome different viewpoints or differences of opinion and actually get people working together for change. Um, I don't know if I'm going to precisely answer it, but again, I applaud the question um, that sort of takes the altitude up about how we're thinking about the work of social change and sort of setting it at the level of systems. You know, again, I spend my day thinking about the role of social innovation, this approach to tackling problems. How do we expand and mobilize and really sort of build the, the movement over the next number of decades and begin to mainstream it. 
And, you know, it's interesting when you look back to the founding of social innovation, one of the driving features of social innovation was in many ways sort of a skepticism of government, right? Sort of the government is not solving societal problems. So we as civil society actors, um, as social entrepreneurs will solve it, right? So um, for the first 30 or so years of the social innovation field, um, there was sort of an arm's length view of government as not a partner, more so a hindrance. But as social innovation began to take root, there was a recognition that government was part of our our scale proposition, right? It was sort of the venture capital arm to help evidence-based solutions begin to scale. Um, So recognizing that someone that you had held at arm's length really actually had to be drawn in has been an interesting trajectory in our field. And I would say we're also now seeing that rapprochement with many of the social innovators who come at the work through the lens of justice, um, beginning to um, interrogate relationships with the business community, right? So there has been sort of, I think, a trenchant legitimate analysis of the role of business as bad actor, of throwing off so many negative externalities um, and leaving it to civil society or government to clean up. But sort of the acceleration as growth and consumption has led to this sort of shareholder capitalism model that has just widened the gap, has sort of deepened the inequities and sort of driven up the, the level of externalities. But now, recognizing when you sort of look at the largest GDPs across the globe, uh, more of them, increasingly more of them are are businesses, are business enterprises, as opposed to governments, right? You've now got sovereign actors who are not sort of democratically elected, they're business enterprises. So this recognition that until we work with business, until we sort of figure out the E, the S, the G, and ESG and sustainability, and help sort of businesses to drive into the core of their various business operations, their business values, the way they operate and and deal with their um, stakeholders, we are never going to get to the level of change that we need um, because we just simply can't sort of wrap our arms and push back against these negative externalities. So from a systems level, I think social innovators are thinking about how are folks that you're initially skeptical of or um, in opposition to are actually better to bring in through an alliance-based model. And I think that's the journey that social innovation continues to walk through and go through. And I just think it makes a lot of sense when you believe that we are stronger together. And that's sort of the shared value creation model is ultimately going to be what allows us to solve many of these existential challenges. And it gets back to one of those qualities of leaders that you talked about earlier in the hour, that kind of stickiness, that ability to get different stakeholders and different folks with sometimes different viewpoints and incentives all, um, you know, rallying together around a common vision and a common cause. And so um, to Logan, who asked the question, thank you for that. I think it's a really important perspective. Um, We're just about coming to time here, um, Cheryl. So I'm going to reserve the last question for for myself. And this will be the sort of, you know, advice to the rising generation question. Um, We We've talked about how social innovators and social entrepreneurs have been so important, not just in responding to the, you know, the, the challenges posed by the pandemic and all of its ripple effects, but are going to be critical to us to reimagine and remaking the kind of world we want to live in. Um, and, and we at the Skoll Center run a program called Map the System, which engages with students at universities around the world, 10,000 students at 60 universities, um, to take on challenges like this. And so this year, they're working on systems reset problems. 
problems. How do we reimagine our health systems, our economic systems, our social systems, uh, and think about the climate crisis and build that kind of future that we want? What advice would you have to to those students and other rising change makers around the world who you know see the world in flames right now and want to help us build something better? Uh, it's it was such a wonderful um, opportunity for the students, and I think this is exactly the kind of pedagogy and curriculum that um, we need more of. I mean, again, to you know all of the young people, um, your call to action is to get out there in the world and do this kind of reimagination, um, this rebuilding, um, this reframing that has to happen. Um, so many of these crises are truly existential. And if you want a future for yourself and for your families um, and to be good planetary stewards, you've got to do this work. I would just say that, again, I'm an acolyte of social innovation. I've sort of given my professional life to this field. Um, but I think one of the things that we sort of get wrong is um, we've sort of unconsciously sent this message that, you know, all of you incredibly talented young people should go out and start something new, right? We've sort of defaulted to the hagiography or the mythology of the social entrepreneur or starting something new. And in fact, uh, that I'm saying this, given my day job, I don't want most of you to start anything new. There's plenty of new stuff out there. It's really hard work. Um, a lot of these enterprises um, fail or never get to the level of uh, investment to drive the change that they would like to see. Um, social innovation is such a broad category of change makers. And there are so many places on the chessboard of society um, to take your unique talent, gifts, or skills and to go drive change as a social innovator, as a systems orchestrator. Your job is to figure out the right alignment, right? You all have a particular set of skills, talents, and gifts. You're animated by a particular passion, that thing that's going to get you up every morning that will allow you to drive and hard charge through a 20-hour day that you don't mind doing so because you're so committed to the cause. You need to figure out what that alignment is and then go out there and do it. And hopefully for many of you, it will be figuring out how to build a more inclusive capitalism system, right? What does an inclusive economy for the 21st century really look like? Um, for some of you, it's what does good government and governance look like, right? Go and serve public service as the highest uh, form of calling in many ways to sort of keep together um, our civic fabric. For others of you, it's having deft management and operational skills, right? Go figure out how to build those supply chains that are sustainable, that are ethical, um, that bring in local uh, stakeholder communities. Figuring out where you fit is your job at this age and at this stage of your career. At Equine Green, we talk about, you know, head plus heart equals hustle. When you sort of get into that alignment, when that access is aligned, the possibilities are limitless. And it's your job to figure out where you fit in the ecosystem of change. So I wish you good luck, uh, but it really is the work of your generation to do. And I appreciate you all in advance for giving your time and your talent to doing it, but I don't think there's any more valuable of a journey for you all to take. My thanks to Dr. Cheryl Dorsey and Dr. Peter Drobeck. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would mean a great deal to us if you could leave a review and subscribe to future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up in the series, we've got conversations and discussions you won't want to miss, including insights from female leadership, sustainability, reporting in capital markets, 
and a discussion on the future of relations between China and the West. If you'd like more information about this episode and the Leadership in Extraordinary Times series, please visit OxfordAnswers.org. Thanks for listening.